This podcast is sponsored by TaskTop, the leading value stream integration solution that makes DevOps work at scale. TaskTop integrates your favorite tools used to plan, build, and deploy enterprise-scale software and enables organizations to deliver better software faster. For more information about TaskTop, please visit infoq.link forward slash TaskTop. Good day, this is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Culture Podcast. I'm here with Adam Tornhill. Adam is from Empire, who make tools for software analysis. Adam recently spoke at the QCon London conference on technical debt. Adam, good day. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, thanks a lot, Doc. Pleasure to be here. Uh, would you mind giving us a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. So I'm Adam Tornhill, a software developer from Sweden. I'm one of the founders of uh, a startup called Empire, and I've been working as a programmer for 20 years now in a variety of uh, different languages and technologies. And I have this fairly, fairly traditional uh, engineering background, but my background is also a little bit different because I have one of my degrees in psychology, which is a huge influence for me. And I tried to put these two fields together in um, my work, uh, Your Code is a Crime Scene, which is my previous book. Why psychology and how does that uh, influence what you're thinking of and looking at with your work in technical debt and exploring code bases and working with organizations? Yes, so the reason I started to study psychology, it was a long time ago now, it's more than a decade ago. By that time I had worked for 10 years in the software industry and I had had my fair share of uh, failed projects. Projects that, that just turned into death marshes and um, cost of fortune and what they were horrible to work on. And I wanted to kind of find out why is it so hard to develop software? Why do we fail with it all the time? Because I, I had a feeling that it wasn't just a pure technical explanation for that. So I decided to sign up for an introductory course to uh, psychology. And then it turned out to be so fun that I continued for one more year. And then I realized, all right, one more year and I can actually graduate. So I went on like that. And I actually studied psychology for six years. And I took my degree more or less by accident. It wasn't planned. And yeah, since then I found that um, there are so many areas within our traditional technical field where psychology applies. Because code is written by people and psychology is about how we people work how we think, how we reason, how we solve problems, and also how we work with others. And I find that there's a strong relation to technical depth in that area, because a lot of technical depth isn't necessarily technical in its nature. It's due to organizational and social factors. Really, really interesting. I, I know in your talk you touched on the importance of some of the communication aspects and code as a, 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 a tool for communicating across time between people. How does the programmer's viewpoint or perhaps organizational culture come into the accumulation or, or not of technical debt? So yeah, so one of the points I tried to make in my presentation is that we tend to mistake organizational problems for technical issues. And I think the main reason we do that is because the organization who writes the code is invisible in the code itself. So we don't see it, we just see the end result. And I went into depth on this in my book, uh, Your Code is a Crime Scene, because 
I've seen a lot of times that we 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 find ourselves in code that's hard to understand. It's spaghetti code, and we cannot see any rationale behind it. And then, as you start to investigate it, you realize that that code isn't written by a single individual. It's written by perhaps 20, 30 people over a number of years. And if you look at recent development activity in those kind of code bases, you tend to find that you have like five or maybe 10 people that work with that part of the code every single month. And this ties into our ability to understand the code. Because the more people that work on a part of the code, the harder it is for an individual to build a stable, long-term mental model of what the code looks like and how the domain looks. So it's really, really tricky to build expertise in a moving target, a target that changes behind our back due to changes on different feature branches and so on. And the end result tends to be code of low quality. There's pretty good, there are several pretty good research studies that show that the number of developers working on a piece of code, it's one of the best predictors on the number of quality issues you will have in that code. So one code base, one person? No, not necessarily, because there are so many, again, it's about so many trade-offs, so it depends a bit on your organizational goals too. In many cases, it's of course a huge risk to have a single developer who knows the whole code base, even though it's ideal from a communication point of view, of course. So you want to kind of balance it. You do want uh, multiple people to be able to give their input on their solutions. I think that code reviews, for example, are vital to high-quality code. And you probably can't afford having several people working the same parts of the code. You, you just need to acknowledge that having multiple people work in your code may benefit you in terms of knowledge distribution, but it will come at a cost. It will slow you down slightly in the short term. And also think there is a cutoff point beyond which it becomes virtually impossible to put more people into the code without losing both uh, efficiency and uh, quality. And I think that number is uh, fairly low. These organizations who uh, throw dozens of people at the code base to make it go quicker. <laughs> yeah, I've experienced that a few times myself. So the most extreme example I've seen was, um, yeah, it, it, fortunately it's a long time ago now, was back in my days as a consultant. And this particular organization, they, had, they were actually in a pretty good situation because they had some technical data some historical data that showed them that this new product that we want to develop, they had done something very similar in the past. So they knew that developing this product will take us approximately one year, give or take, using our five in-house developers. However, then of course, I mean, a software project that's predictable, crazy, right? So they decided that we want it done in just three months because that will allow us to take part in a, a trade show and the way they solved it, take something that you know will take a year and compress it down to three months, was by hiring 25 consultants and throwing them all at the code base. And the interesting thing with this project is it was so fast-paced. So the initial architecture was already set, and then they put their 25 consultants and the five in-house developers on that code base. And the end result was a complete disaster. And it wasn't obvious at first because they seemed to make progress, but pretty soon everyone started to complain about a um, lot of defects, unexpected feature interactions, and develop their development speed slowly halted to a crawl. 
So that's uh, where I joined the project and uh, tried to investigate what actually went wrong and what we could do about it. And it was a really, really interesting lesson for me. Yes, uh, Brooks Law from the 1980s, adding people to a late project only makes it later. What about techniques yeah, like, like pair programming? How do they impact us? So that's one of the areas where I actually cannot talk from experience because I, I've never pair programmed professionally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do it all the time with my colleagues, when, but that's more of a pair debugging. Mm -hmm. I've never done any pair programming, and I've tried to read up on the research, but it seems kind of inc inconclusive. Mm. And uh, I think a lot of the research that's done on pair programming, it's unfortunately done on uh, university students, which I don't think are representative of um, what actually happens in, the, in an industry setting. So I'm afraid I can't give you a good answer on that. That's great. You did mention code reviews is an important technique. Why? Well, I just think that software is so incredibly hard to get right. So we definitely need a second pair of eyes, at least, a, at least one more pair. And I also think that code reviews are a great way not only to have them as a quality gate, I think that you uh, perform a little bit better, at least that's the case for me, I perform a little bit better when I know that someone else would review my code. So you have that motivational aspect and also think that code reviews are a great way to um, spread some knowledge of what's actually happening in the different parts of the code. And I've seen so many cases where you could significantly simplify the problem you're trying to solve and as a consequence also the solution by getting some input at the code review. Then of course you have um, the research finding that show that code reviews are they're quite efficient at um, reducing defects. So you have that quality dimension there too. How do you convince the programmer who feels nobody, can, nobody else could understand my code or should be allowed to look at my code to, to be involved in reviews? Oh yeah. That's something that happens every now and then. And I think when you find yourself in that situation, you have actually failed much, much earlier because it's such an important part of the engineering culture that we need to build that we need to kind of understand that we will, software is just too hard for us. We humans, we shouldn't even be able to do something as complicated as writing code. Our brains aren't made for it. So. I think you actually have to take a step back and think about what are we doing wrong uh, when we try to build our engineering culture because that's where the root cause of the problem is. You should never find yourself in a discussion like that. It's a symptom, not the disease. So what makes a, a, a productive engineering culture? So a productive engineering culture, it's definitely a culture where you are allowed to be imperfect. You're al allowed to tell, tell everyone on your team that you actually don't know the best way to solve a problem. And, you, and it's also culture of collaboration and things that we talked about earlier, like uh, pair programming and pair debugging happens naturally. And also, the best organizations I've seen, there are also organizations that are constantly learning where learning, not only for individual, but also for the organization, is encouraged. And I think that's kind of the key. If you have a learning organization, you're on a good track. And how do you encourage and nurture such a culture? You do that by setting an example yourself. 
I think that's the most important thing you can do as a manager or a technical leader to show everyone that you care deeply. I think one of the simplest things you can do is also to remove those obvious obstacles to learning. So earlier in my career, when I looked for a new job and I went to an interview, one of my main questions was, what's the process for buying a book if I need one? And every company that um, had a book, had a process for buying a book, got a polite no thanks from me. Because I think it's uh, such a simple thing. If someone wants to learn something, they want to search out some knowledge and buy a book. It's no investment for a company. It costs virtually nothing. Then if you need a process for that, it's a really, really bad sign. Let's talk a little bit about technical debt and some of the topics that you covered in your QCon talk. The term technical debt itself, you, you in fact said, is often misused. Do you want to explore that with us a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'll be happy to do that. So, technical debt has has become a quite a well-known and popular uh, term, and I tend to find that we developers we tend to use it for all kind of code that we don't like. And my key point is that just because some code is bad doesn't mean it's technical debt. It's not technical debt unless we have to pay an interest rate on it. That's kind of the key. So if you have some bad code and you never need to touch it, it's not really a problem. And all big code bases, they have a lot of potential problems. There are so much codes to improve and we cannot possibly improve all of it at once. So we need to be quite ruthless as we prioritize the technical debt we really need to fix. So that was my starting point for everything. And the interesting thing with technical debt, if we now want to prioritize technical debt and distinguish between true technical debt, where we actually pay an interest rate, and code that's just bad. In that case, we actually need a time dimension into our code because technical debt is, on, is a function of time. So we need to understand if we actually work in a part of the code or not. So it's only worth exploring if we're going to work in that code base in that part of the code yeah i think that's actually key because if you have um i often come across large large uh, legacy code base they may have several million lines of code and some of that code is simply of uh, subpar quality and if when you see it you want to fix it right mm-hmm. but fixing something that actually works is a high risk activity and besides it takes time away from fixing things that could actually matter, things that actually make a difference in terms of both productivity and efficiency for you. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's so important to prioritize technical depth. And the key to doing that prioritization is to actually base the decisions on how we have worked with the code so far, because that turns out to be a pretty good predictor of where you will need to work with the code tomorrow. Yes, the. Uh... The Pareto principle, you know, 80% of bugs appear in 20% of the code base, is, is a fundamental of, of software testing. Yeah, that's right. And I see uh, Pareto principles everywhere in software systems. And when you look at the contributions patterns, you will see power law distributions. And also when you prioritize technical depth, you will find out that you spend the majority of your time in a fairly small part of the code base. And most of your code is in that long tail of the power law distribution, which means it's code that's rarely, if ever, touched. So how do you identify 
and then how do you choose which pieces of the code base you should be investing in in terms of reducing the technical debt? So my main metrics that I look at, first of all, I I view this as a way to kind of gather the collective intelligence of all contributing offers. So I look at their behavior, and their behavior is recorded in a version control history. So I basically mine the version control history, and I look at which parts of the code have been changed the most in the past in the past months, or maybe the past year in a larger code base. And with then I that helps me narrow down the amount of code I need to investigate, typically to just around uh, four to five percent of the total code base. And then I add a second dimension. Then I look at the complexity dimension. So I take those four or five percent of the code base, and then I look at which part of code have a high code complexity. Because some things that change often, maybe simple things like a, a version number in a file or um, a simple configuration script, and those are usually not that interesting. So using this combination of code with high change frequency and look for an overlap with complicated code, you're able to calculate what I call hotspots. Mm -hmm. And the hotspots are usually pretty good refactoring candidates. What are some of the, the common patterns or trends that you've seen when identifying hotspots in, in code bases? Yeah, so one of the most important <laughs> things I've seen is that code grows into hotspot for a reason. And the reason a piece of code attracts a lot of different changes is probably because it has good reasons to do so. It has too many responsibilities. So low cohesion is the number one reason I've seen that code grows into hotspots. And the second reason I've seen is that the code may be a central part of the, of the domain, and it may be a domain concept that isn't that well understood. So that, in turn, tends to lead to a lot of churn in that code. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say that low cohesion is the number one reason. And we know how to fix that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's simple in theory to fix it, right? You identify the different responsibilities and you split the file accordingly into smaller modules, and then you can address them, um, address the technical depth in each individual mm -hmm. module over time. Mm -hmm. In practice, however, it's usually much much harder because those hot, top hotspots that attract so many changes. Those changes tend to come from multiple different programmers, perhaps even in multiple different teams. Because again, the hotspots, they may be huge files, they may be thousands, sometimes even 20,000 lines of code. So there's a lot of responsibility in them, a lot of reasons for change, and they attract many offers. Mm -hmm. So in practice, you need to consider the organizational and social view as you refactor the code too. This leads back to the discussion about psychology and culture. Um, how does organization culture influence things like architecture? We hear about Conway's law, where the code represents the organization structure. Are you seeing the same? Or is it, is it different to that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see mm. a, it's a significant trend in the direction of um, trying to align the organization and architecture with each other as uh, Conway pointed out. And mm -hmm. I, f I find it quite fascinating, actually. I, you mentioned Brooke's Law earlier. Mm -hmm. Adding more people to a late project makes it even later. Mm -hmm. And actually, I read the Mythical Man Month just a week ago. 
And it's kind of surprising that that book, it's 40 years old, describes a software project from the 60s, and still it hasn't lost, lost much uh, relevance. Mm. And, uh, I f- yeah, and I find it really, really fascinating. And Conway's Law, uh, I see it, it, it definitely becomes more popular these days. There are still a lot of organizations that don't even consider the organizational sites, but several do. But I do think that Conway's Law is really just a starting point. It's an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. And we need to do much, much more to be efficient with our architecture. What would some of those much, much more things be? So Conway's Law is basically, I would say from a psychological point of view, it's a trade-off. Because what you do with Conway's Law is <laughs> basically that you minimize the need for communication and coordination between different teams which is a good thing. That's the direction we have to go in. However, that separation comes at a price, and that price is increased uh, inter-team conflicts. And I haven't heard much about that in a software setting, but it's something that social psychologists have been studying for uh, decades now. And it would really, really surprise me if we won't hear more about that later in our field too. So how could churn in the code base be the visible evidence of inter-team conflict? I'm not sure that it, uh, that churn alone is a good predictor of that, but since I work in version control Wonderland, we have access to all that social and organizational information too, mm. because your version control system knows exactly which programmer that worked with which part, and it's pretty simple to map those individuals into the teams as the organization looks today. And then you can start to look for an overlap and identify and put that social dimension on your code and see that, yeah, within this part of the code, we actually have five different teams that work all the time. And then you can start to look at your organization and see, well, how organizationally close are those different teams that need to coordinate all the time? Mm -hmm. But then, of course, the whole psychological aspect of it um, isn't isn't visible neither in the code nor in the virtual control system. So you don't know if you're the victim of inter-team conflict, but inter-team conflict, I think it's inevitable unless you manage to build an organization and an engineering culture where you all have a common goal, and that goal is known all the time. That's one of the best remedies. So coming back to what you were saying earlier about what makes a good engineering culture. Yeah, that's definitely one part of it. I mean, all tasks that we do, we should know the bigger picture behind them. We should know the reason why we do them. And it ties back also to the, to me as an individual because it's much more motivating to work on something when you understand how it fits the bigger uh, picture, that you know that your contribution make a difference. It makes wonders for motivation, productivity, and also I would say it probably ties into quality as well. So we're not just code monkeys sitting there typing what they tell us. (laughs) Sometimes I feel it would be practical if it was that way, but no, we are people and we developers, we tend to have much the same needs as other people. And I think that's the the cardinal sin number one that uh, some organizations do. They consider developers as some kind of interchangeable generic resources. And I think that's fed up. So, Adam, I think we've got some really uh, actionable advice for for people here. Is there any final advice that you would give technical leaders listening to this conversation this morning? Yeah, so my number one advice is build a culture 
where you encourage people to care about what we build, to care about learning. Encourage learning is the most important thing you can do. And from a technical point of view, when addressing technical depth, I would say try to put numbers on your gut feelings. Because your gut feelings are so likely to be influenced and biased by a lot of cognitive and social factors. That's why I think it's really, really important to measure and use those measures as a basis for our decisions. Excellent. And at some stage in the future, we'll probably take the opportunity to pin you down and talk about what some of those measures are and how people can pull them out. But for now, I'd I'd like to say thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting and some great advice there. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me here. It's a true pleasure to talk with you and to all the listeners. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks.